0: This is a drink with a friend. I am Tish Oxenreiter. (music) Seth is off being a lawyer in this episode. So I am chatting with my new friend, Autumn Kern. Hello, Autumn. How are you?
1: Hi, Tish. I'm doing so well. Thanks for having me. Good. What are you drinking right now? Ah, yes. Okay. Well, my children have a pop-up coffee shop that they do called the Rascalberry Coffee Shop. They serve out of our front windows onto the city street below. It's a fun thing we do. And I am drinking the Boy King, which is like brown sugar shaken with espresso topped with heavy cream over ice. So that's their one of their three. They're named after the three children's nicknames and the Boy King is everyone's favorite. <laughs> I love that name. That
0: is fantastic. Thank you. That's adorable. So you mean like they literally sell it? Like it's not pretend?
1: No, it's not pretend. No, this is how they make their pocket money so they can treasure hunt at yard sales all summer or replace their butterfly nets for the fifth time, that situation. (laughs) And so we help them. I do a lot of the prep work with them, but they have to pay us back for the things they buy for the shop and everything. And they split their profits. And we invite all of our friends. We have a very like Narnian logo. It's, It's a whole thing we do.
0: I love that so much. I'm drinking boring old peppermint tea. Uh, so I don't even have anything to say about that other than it's boring <laughs> old peppermint tea. That's what I got. Um, how old are your
1: kids? They are six, four and a half and two and a half.
0: Okay. That's what I love because you. we were just saying before we hit record that you remind me of like a younger sister I never had because so much of the stuff you talk about, Feels like the things that I am always talking to my husband, Kyle, about, yet from a slightly younger demographic. Because my kids, as listeners know, are 13, 15, and 18. So Mm -hmm. it's like 10 years difference, Mm -hmm. but... Kind of one in the same, I guess, in a way. And in fact, we have the same, like my newsletter is called The Commonplace. Your stuff is called the Well, commonplace. C- The Commonplace. It's a lot of common, a, common in my world. Yeah. yeah. But it's, so it's very similar. And that's why I think my listeners would 100% love everything you're doing
1: because Thank we you. just talk
0: about a lot of the same stuff. And I'm so happy to have found you. And this is one of the examples when the internet does a lovely thing because the YouTube algorithm just showed you to me. Ah. Otherwise, yeah, that was how I found you, which is very cool.
1: Yeah, sometimes it does good work. Sometimes
0: it does. And I had one of the first questions that I feel like you've probably been asked before because you address this as like, oh, is this the Kearns as in Andrew Kern?
1: Everyone asks and... me that if they know about classical education, yes. Unfortunately, uh-huh. no. I always feel like I disappoint people. Like, no, <laughs> I'm not. So sorry.
0: <laughs> no, it's great. I love it. Okay. Um, so you do talk about homeschooling. You talk about classical. You talk about Charlotte Mason and... And I have plenty of listeners that are into that. So that would fit the bill in many ways. But you also talk about just life stuff, like living a good life, living a life that uh, is full of virtue, I feel like is maybe the way to put it. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's where I want to park right now, in particular, a series you've been doing about switching from a smartphone to a dumb phone. So let me just ask what started this? What made you want to do that?
1: Yeah, I think that like a lot of people, I've been in the process of breaking up with my smartphone for a couple of years now. Like First, I had to break up with apps, how I was using them, particularly Instagram, things like that. Then I turned my phone into a grayscale phone. So it wasn't very attractive to look at. And then I actually made it into a dumb phone. And then I read Cal Newport's Digital Minimalism, which really gave me a framework and some language for how could I use tech well. Like, is this a good thing and is the best way to get it? That sort of question that he runs through his book was really helpful. So there were all these steps. But then at the end of last year, I just had this constant questioning in the back of my head. I knew I had a pretty healthy handle on my smartphone. Like it was serving me at that point. But I still wondered if this idea of are we cultivating convenience, a love for it in a way that actually makes us prefer machines over people? If that was kind of coming to play and what ended up being a lot more connected than I originally anticipated, my second question was if it was kind of cultivating the lie of old, that we are like God in ways that we are not. Are we able to be omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent? And I just wondered as a mom in the early years with a lot of little people around me who have very physical embodied needs all of the time, if it was actually making life seem more difficult or more cumbersome because I was being drawn towards what was easy and efficient via my smartphone, which is what most moms have in their back pockets. I can't sit on a computer all day. That's not my life. But I had this tiny computer in my back pocket. And I just had this gut feeling that it was actually causing more problems than I even thought and I needed to get rid of it in order to observe it. And so in December, I switched down to what is called a dumb phone, but it is a good phone does what it's supposed to do. (laughs) It just calls people. And um, yeah, I've had that since since early December, and I've decided I'm not going back.
0: I saw that in a recent video. You said mm-hmm. th- this started as an experiment. This is now just the way you live your life. Yes. Um, practically speaking, was there anything that was hard to let go of? Like, did you miss having, I don't know, Maps? Do you miss yes.
1: on a flip phone? I don't even know. No. I mean, you <laughs> okay. can Okay. So there are definitely like very fancy, minimal, dumb phones that are really aesthetically pleasing for the modern woman or man. Um, I mm-hmm. went with a $20 one from Target, the only one they had on my plan. Um, so it's an old school flip phone you really have to jerk it open, really press the buttons down. It's it's like what we had back in, you know, the 2000s. Um, And so I got that kind. Um, Maps was the one that kind of really held on to me. I just started writing out instructions. It was sort of like the problem that I thought was going to be the huge problem ended up not being that bad. Was not inconvenient? Has it continued to have little funny, inconvenient moments? Of course. But um, you can problem solve and get over that. And I do think, I do think like, I am old enough that I did live life without a smartphone for a good bit all the way through almost the end of college. I studied abroad. I lived abroad. I know you lived abroad. And so you did all sorts of crazy traveling issues and problems that you just have to kind of figure out. And so I did have that and just kind of had to bring those muscles back out. But the maps and then, of course, I do miss podcasts. Um, I love to listen to podcasts. I love listening to music. But I even had a question like, is it good for me to get whatever I want when I want it? Is it good for my kids to demand? They don't demand their sweet kids, but like ask for all the music they want right when they want it. And can I live a life with limitations that are not set arbitrarily by mom? That was one, one question to this, but actually we just live a life of limitations because we as humans do live lives of limitations and we continue to try to stretch ourselves outside of those. Which I know is something you guys have talked about a lot with your six month experience last year, trying to buy within the limits of Mm -hmm. your, your city, which I thought was really cool.
0: Yeah. It's a similar concept. And you bring up the point of Gnosticism because we're so uh, used to living not so analog anymore, you know, and so this virtual concept makes like it, it decreases friction Mm -hmm. in the reality of life to the point where we are not used to not getting what we want at any moment. And I think that's what perhaps downgrading your phone does. It provides you a little bit of that friction so that you are inconvenienced. And maybe that inconvenience is not such a bad thing. So yeah, Yeah. you can't listen to song X as soon as you want. (laughs) But perhaps that's not all bad, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That was that was definitely part of it. Um, I don't, I usually ask these three questions and I think they would line up well with things that you like to talk about as well. Like what is a person? How are we formed? And to what end ought we aim? And there is danger in answering those questions differently than God does. And I don't think that we're used to pausing with the norms that we've inherited or that are being created around us now that we're passing on to our children of of pausing and asking am I living within God's answers to those? Because something like convenience can seem really appealing to the modern ear. Like, oh, I have a lot of meaningful stuff to do. So if I can offshoot all these tasks and just, you know, I'm standing in my house, but I'm really standing in the grocery store, signing my kid up for soccer, visiting my doctor and checking in on a friend. Well, I took care of all that. So now I can do this more meaningful stuff or however we kind of, make it like a modern day virtue, efficiency is such a virtue today, um, we actually end up harming something that makes us human. And I think that's kind of where I started to pull this thread of Gnosticism is, I mean, this is a very small thread of Gnosticism, which is obviously a full-bodied philosophy. There's a lot going on there. But this idea that reality is found in in a place where you have to escape from your body was slowly coming to light for me, that it seemed like I was doing the really important stuff, whether that be my work or connecting with people, without having to engage my body. And when one part of you is not living with the rest of you, I think that is a slippery slope.
0: No. I don't know what
1: you think. Yeah, you're kind of getting into the
0: telos, right? Yeah. Of a, what a human is like. Mm-hmm. What is our purpose? And you mentioned efficiency, and I feel like efficiency, curiosity, these are things that our modern world deems as virtues, but mm-hmm. they're not actually virtues. No. And so. We have to ask ourselves: Is this thing in my pocket contributing? Is making me more virtuous, like in the real sense, like prudence, yeah, and fortitude, and all these, all these actual virtues? Is this phone adding to that? And I can't say it's ever done that for me, to be honest. But it has added, you know, a lot of curiosity to my life. I no longer have to wonder who won the luge in 1992. (laughs) You know, you can like look it up. But maybe there's something to be said about
1: sitting there and just wondering things. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, I think that's beautiful. I think that what's so what's so interesting to me is, well, I read this uh, short story. Have you read Ian Forrester's um, The Machine Stops?
0: You were just talking about it on the video. I was just listening to So I put it on my list, but I have not read it yet.
1: Excellent. So uh, a friend told me I should read it, particularly when I started this. And somehow I made it, you know, 33 years without having to talk about this essay to everyone. And now it has to come out (laughs) all of the time. Every conversation somehow loops into this. But they, they are these people who live in pods and they access their entire lives through a screen. So their bodies are kind of nuisances. They just hold the mind, which is what's actually living. Right. And that started to echo a lot of what we do where we just engage with everything online. Our bodies aren't involved, but they really get comfortable with this idea of good enough where they can't really see on the screen. They can't really touch the thing, but it's good enough. And I kept thinking, particularly after a post COVID world, how comfortable we're growing with good enough. It's okay if my attention split between what I'm looking at on my phone and my kids in front of me, or it's okay that I have all these curiosities. So I'm opening 75 tabs when I'm supposed to be working diligently on something and it's. We're, we're no longer good with excellence, which if we're pursuing virtue, as you're talking about, we're going for an excellence in a thing. We're just good. Good enough fine. Fine with good enough. Yeah. And I think that's a really dangerous thing to change a lot about what we think about being human, but also our repetitive tastes, our practices. Our practices are going to form us in a direction. What's that going to do? It, could, it can sound very dystopian when I talk about this, but I do think there are questions that need to be asked.
0: Well, I don't think you're that far off when you say something being dystopian because there are many times I feel like we live in a not unlike a dystopian world.
1: Yeah. Um the
0: more and more we talk about the crazy AI stuff and oh and the meta, I mean, it just feels very like it just very otherworldly in many ways. Um another thing, you mentioned just lots of tabs open, it reminds me of that idea of content gluttony, you know. Oh, yeah. We we just become so used to consuming more and more and more and you've mentioned this before the the idea of short form form versus long form yes where we're so used to just like scrolling for more dopamine hits of content without actually letting that content have its way in us so, yeah. you know it, we're, we're not actually reaping a net benefit to any of this stuff we're just consuming
1: mm-hmm. yeah i think that ties into your idea of like sitting with wonder and just sitting mm-hmm. and not knowing even just i think that's a that's an act of humility right to not go and now that we can access the answer to everything to actually not do it but to sit um i do talk about long form short form content quite a bit because i do think form really matters with how we engage with things it changes it changes a lot about epistemology also than how you react to it meaningful action in the world um there's a great book amusing ourselves to death by Neil Postman, Mm -hmm. which I loved. Um, I just read it again recently. And it's one of those that you just love a little bit more every time you read it. But what happens when we change the form of how we share information and knowledge, whether that be in politics, journalism, religion, education, it actually completely changes how we view that thing and what we think its point is in life again to the telos. And so um, I do think that we are at danger because of the tiny computers in our pockets of constantly having something running and never really learning anything. Um, You mentioned I love Charlotte Mason, and I do believe our minds were made, they're spiritual things, they're made for ideas, which are spiritual things. And in order to be shaped by those, you have to, one, engage with them in the right context right form and to allow it to do its work and humans are not fast things we're not machines and that really loops through this whole conversation of being a human used to be a metaphor like humus earth we're earth people we don't have language Mm -hmm. for that and as our norm changes we don't really even have a picture of that anymore unless of Mm -hmm. course you get to the incarnation which i feel like we could have fun with but um yeah it's it's just very it's yeah It's just not being a person, but we no longer have a good definition for what a person is because we're very scientific. Uh, It reminds me a little bit. I don't know
0: if you know who Mark Barnes is. I think he's up in your area. Um, He runs a thing called New Polity, and he talks a lot about um, getting rid of phones. Uh, smartphones. And I heard him once on an interview where he talked about this idea of what's a machine versus what's a tool. Okay, And that a machine is a thing that ultimately does replaces a job for you. Mm-hmm. A tool helps you do a job better. I so like a hammer helps us hang a picture on a wall. It's mm-hmm. a tool. It's way better than our fist, right? Because right. <laughs> it does the job well. But uh, a phone replaces our ability to have a conversation with a friend over a cup of coffee and instead Mm -hmm. just lets us feel like we're getting that that friendship hit by way of Instagram or something like that. So it actually replaces it. It doesn't make us do it better. And I think one of the problems we run into is so often we think of a phone as a tool mm-hmm. and it's not, it's a machine. Yes. And so a good question, I think, to ask, and it hits on maybe the first thing we were talking about is, does this help me, does this just give an, a net benefit to my life? Does it help me be a more virtuous person if that's my telos to grow in virtue? Right. Does the phone do that? Is that a tool for that? I mean right. I don't I haven't found that to be true.
1: No, I haven't either. And I've really noticed this in the last five months in terms of fellowshipping and friendship. So things like that are very human, repenting, rejoicing, feasting, fellowship require a body, right? And it requires community. like you have to be with others. And so I've noticed I used to think that I was a really good friend because I could remember to check in with everyone, shoot them a text follow up, whatever it was, remember a thing I saw on Instagram about them. But now I have chosen to show up at people's houses. And yes, for the friends who are far away, I call them on the phone. And that is a great way to connect with them. But I'm, again, hearing their voice. There's something about using something like texting, where you do not hear a voice, you do not see a face. And is that a human interaction? Because I can say in the last five months, there's a richness to those moments, even if they're brief, I stop by on someone's porch for 10 minutes. It's still Um, something that I think is more life-giving and builds deeper roots. And it kind of has that idea of if it asks more of you, it develops more in you. And I think I've seen that in my relationships that my friends are now at the mercy of my dumb phone as well. They have to call or they have to greet me when I show up on their doorstep, whatever it is. And that's all kind of inconvenient. And yet it adds this like richness of fellowship that just cannot be matched through a machine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It reminds me a
0: little bit. So I, I, I live behind a coffee shop and I go there maybe once a week and uh, my my listeners know that I, I got off Instagram, I don't know, eight months ago now. Yes. When I first did, the owner, the barista kept commenting on how she missed seeing seeing me on Instagram. Like, oh, mm. I miss seeing your photos and I miss seeing your kids. And I just had to laugh because I thought like, I'm right in front of you. Right. Here, Actually, I, am. here I am. Hi. <laughs> you know, my daughter comes in every couple of weeks to study. You can see her. You can just ask how she's doing. We don't need that Instagram connector right. because we're physically in the same building now. Right. And I think in my head, I thought I needed Instagram to be a good friend, which mm. sounds so strange now that I say that because I haven't been on in so long. Right. That I hear that from people. Whenever I espouse the benefits of not being on Instagram, I don't want to lose touch with my
1: friends. Mm-hmm. So, have you had any pushback from people? Have you heard things like that? Yes. So, when I read Digital Minimalism about a year and a half ago, I actually did his digital detox. I highly recommend the book. Anyone who's curious about this, go buy it and read it. It's really well done. Um, and what happened was, everyone who was kind of grumpy when I sent the initial text to be like, "Hey." I will not be accessible via text. You will have to call me for the next two months. I'm doing this thing. Dah, 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 dah. Everyone kind of had some grump about it. And by the end, my closest like people were like, this was great. You had to call me. I could hear your tone. I could hear your voice. Like it was so much better. I felt like I understood everything we were saying more. Also, when we got together, our conversations were better because it wasn't this like stream of, oh, I saw you did this. Oh yeah, I saw you did that back and forth. It was actually like what's going on in your life. And then you could dig so much deeper because when you're having a conversation in real time, you're able to pull those threads. Like, oh, actually your body language changed there. Are you like worried about something? Are you really excited about something? What's going on? Um, and so I found that even if I get pushback, after someone bears with me for a bit, because I think they do feel like they are bearing with me, um, they they see that it's so much better. And I know I have quite a few who are considering getting dumb phones now, including my own husband, who was making, you know, sweet fun of me at the beginning of this. So sure. I think it, it's, it's had a good impact, but... Um, I don't know. I also sometimes throw out that C.S. Lewis thought that um, newspapers and cars were sacraments of modernity. And because you were talking about how machines will erase people, like their work, their meaningful action in God's world. And if you read The Abolition of Man, which is one of my favorite things, he does talk about things like birth control and airplanes eventually leading to the destruction of people. Um, yep. And that's just, you know, a wild time for, for the modern person to hear.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I guess people think that we're, we've are we become so used to these machines in our pockets that the bar just constantly is moved to the point where we just can't fathom not having a phone. So, you know, in my generation of a mom with teens, I hear that a lot from people saying, I don't want my teen to not have a phone yeah. or I don't want them to have access to them. In fact, at our co-op, we have this phone parking lot where kids have to put their phones up before they come through. And we've had some pushback with parents saying, but what if I need to text them? And it's so interesting to me because in my mind, I think like, actually, there's something really great about being inaccessible for eight hours a day. It's not yeah. a lot. Um Do you, as a mom of youngers, have any thought yet as to what your
1: plan is with kids and phones, or are you just going to wait and see? I do feel like it's, it's easy to come up with beautiful plans right now when we're not getting any pushback from the kids. Sort of like you're a perfect parent before you have kids, right? Like this isn't mm-hmm. a thing that we're having to really think through. Um, but I, I mean, I do hope that having the dumb phone is a picture that sticks with my children that I have chosen to do something differently. I mean, they notice like when they play, they're on a phone now, they will say it is a dumb phone. Like they're, they're very aware of what's going on. Um, my, my thought is that the phone is not humanizing. It does not Mm -hmm. actually answer those three questions I mentioned earlier in, in a helpful life-giving way that I think matches how God answers them. And so we have zero plans to be purchasing those for them. Now, will we give them the option to make that decision as they grow? Because they will be growing and they will have to make decisions for themselves. We'll see, but, um, we will not be gifting them phones of any kind. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, my husband had a dumb phone well until after college. And so he just, he grew up in a very different world. And do you remember being a kid and like my mom didn't know where, where I was for five hours and, the afternoon, oh. evening, just out in the neighborhood, you know, like, it's, I do remember that. And I know that's so good for kids. It's so healthy for them to have risk and freedom and free play. And, and of course, my kids are not running around the city by themselves. But um, there's, there's a lot lost in our ability to constantly mm-hmm. keep tabs on everything, because we're not actually omniscient, omnipresent, omnipresent right. as parents. Like, that's not a thing we should believe as parents, because we're not.
0: That's right. There's a uh, well known Proverb, I think it's Scandinavian. It's uh from I, I first read of it in the book um, Last Child in the Woods. I don't oh, know if you've ever read that book. No, but I've it's seen really it. It's really good. Yeah. Okay. Um he says the safest place for a child is five feet in a tree. And yes. the concept is this idea that it's not safe to be on the ground. Like the safest place is to be at a spot where there's just enough risk for you to learn how to be Mm -hmm. uh, how to climb a tree in this instance with this Mm -hmm. proverb and the concept when it comes to parenting is this idea of if we're actually endangering our children more by putting these phones in their pockets and and expecting them to be accessible at all times and for them to not be able to go beyond the block around our house without that. Um, because we're not teaching them how to just flourish in the world as a human without right. that device, right? right? And uh, I live in a neighborhood that's highly walkable. We moved here on purpose. And so the, the huge benefit that I didn't see coming until we did was we actually are around some families who share this value as well. So we mm-hmm. have some friends who are of the same mindset where we let our kids walk, you know, eight blocks to the public library uh, on their own. They don't even, sometimes tell us, Mm. which I know sounds mind blowing to some parents listening, perhaps, but we know that they are safe because they've shown themselves to be safe. And it's not a big deal. And they don't have phones. Mm. And we don't have plans to get them phones until maybe driving, I don't know, I can't decide yet, because my oldest who's 18, that's a different thing. But my my two youngers, they have actively asked not for phones, like they really? do not want phones. And perhaps there is a little bit of a glimmer of hope I see in this generation, I I could be wrong. And I could be, you know, pooling from a very specific demographic. But uh, the kids I teach at our co op uh, seem to understand the negatives of having a phone. And I see that more and more with Gen Z. I don't know. I'm reading these pieces about yep. kids that want to have these like analog clubs mm-hmm. by like just hanging out and reading a, bu- a book or sitting in a hammock together. So perhaps there is something to be said about the kids knowing kind of what's up more than we do. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I've read about a couple of the Luddite clubs in New York City, those That's sorts of is, things. Yeah. yeah, which I think is fascinating that they just want to go sit in Central Park for a couple hours with each other. And why is that <laughs> right. so mind-blowing? Like, why is that newsworthy, you know? that just used to be living. But I do think we can see and I'm, I'm also encouraged that the generation below can see that this has had poor effects on us. We're not flourishing as humans. I know that you also love to talk about the transcendentals, truth, beauty, and goodness, the things that help us flourish mind, body, and spirit. What what then do we pursue? But I i mean, there's plenty of research about the, even just the practice of scrolling. If you think about liturgies or habits, physical habits and how they change who you are, it makes it to where I can't—I don't know the generation names. I always get them confused. I'm always unsure what I am, but um, that right. the one right below me actually can't handle human emotion in real time, something difficult or exciting Mm. because they're so used to swiping beyond it that it's actually putting them in a place where they don't know how to engage. So there goes rejoicing and mourning with one another. Mm. Like we're losing these human things by nature of becoming... Uh, I mean, just loving the machine, keeping company with the machine is the phrase I've been using. We we are more confident there because we can erase our text and rewrite it to make it perfect. We're not going to blunder mm-hmm. over saying something that didn't really land super well with someone. Um, and then, of course, that just breaks down relationship and community yeah. is the the hallmark of the Trinity and of our life together as Christians. So it's it's all kind of got jumbled together there.
0: <laughs> so you bring up community, and that's where I was going to ask you next. Um I ruffled a few feathers, I don't know, a year and a half ago, two years ago, when I, when I wrote a piece where I talked about how online community isn't actually community. I remember this piece. (laughs) Yes. And, uh, You know, this was maybe when COVID was really starting to hit fever pitch where we were all just going nuts. And so I I made the case. I understand that there are times when there's Band-Aid solutions that are needed. But by and large, this isn't real community Mm -hmm. because real community needs to involve face-to-face time. And it needs to be also about a common shared ground. Like, you know, we share a geography, we share a kid's experience or whatever it is. And, um, people pushed back saying actually online community can be community because we do maybe share a certain, like, interest in something. And I, I can understand that there's maybe times and places for that. So yeah. like, you know you're you're dealing with a super rare condition and so you meet you find right. an online forum of people, you know, that's hard to find in real life. Mm-hmm. But um I'm curious as someone who has a community online, you mm-hmm. know, by way of your uh, common mom, common common place, house. Common house mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, how do you juggle that? How do you juggle Ha- hosting an online community where you really are encouraging people to get offline and have communities in their local spaces.
1: Yes. Okay. So I was just actually laughing about this on a YouTube video because I had spent all this time talking about Gnosticism and then was like, everyone come hang out with me on the internet in my, my little <laughs> world I've made. And even in editing, I watched it back and was like, that just sounded so bad <laughs> Like to just flip between <laughs> those two things. But, um, and I remember that piece when you wrote it, cause I was, I was in agreement and as I was launching what then was our Patreon, I was trying to be very mindful of not trying to create what sounded like this online community, come and spend your time here. But I've also learned over the last two years of podcasting for classical home education, that there are people around the world who do not have anyone actually geographically located near them, that they can mm-hmm. discuss these things within a book club. You know, we have moms in countries where homeschooling is illegal, they really can't talk to anyone about it. And so Like your point of there can be an extreme of this is where I've come and this is the only place I can actually talk to women about norms and nobility or whatever it is. Um, (laughs) I've tried to make sure that when I create the content, it's to push people back out because I don't have a problem with coming to learn online. I think there are tremendous gifts, like we were saying, we've connected over the Internet or I wouldn't be a classical home educator without the last six years of attending conferences via the internet and finding about books and speakers and things like that. But it comes back to those questions of what is the form of the content? Is it actually pushing you towards the transcendentals of truth, goodness, and beauty in ways that take you back into your embodied three-dimensional life? Um, And so with what I make, that's what I try to do. And whether that be here is, you know, a book club outline and the outlines for each chapter, the reading schedule, now go form your book club. It's not here. You can't do it with me. You have to go out and find women, or here's how you start a co-op or these different things to hopefully equip women. But um, basically it's that constant turn, pivot, take this and allow it Mm -hmm. to, again, change you and pour you into meaningful action. Nothing we learn is for keeps, right? Like intellectual virtue, is not something that just lives in your head. If it's only in your head and it doesn't live out of your fingertips into your life, then it's not really virtue. And so with that being kind of the heartbeat of what I create, hopefully that's my goal. (laughs) That's what I hope it does, then um, it should naturally like just flow out of a woman. Because what do we do so well? We take ideas and we make them things that you can experience the five senses. Women are incredibly gifted with this. And since I particularly talk to women, um, I think there's a natural like, oh, I've learned something lovely. I want everyone around me to smell it and see it and taste it and hear it. And so that's kind of how I continue to create the the funnel, if you will, of ideas yeah. so that women can take them and engage and be changed and then act because that's what we do yeah. so well.
0: So the last video you just posted had to do with this idea of where to find content like that, content mm-hmm. that pushes you out into your offline life, you know, right. find you know, consume digital content to enhance your analog life is kind of mm-hmm. how I, I think of it. Um, and so I'm curious what you would say to someone listening right now who thinks, okay, everything you're saying sounds so great. Where do I begin? I feel overwhelmed. Like, do I just throw my phone in a river? What What's my next step? I don't know. What would you say to someone listening who has that mind?
1: Okay, well, I think if they're listening to you guys, and they're already in a good spot, sincerely, <laughs> I think that there is um, a, I mean, there's a depth to your conversations, I love listening to your theology, meet your practical philosophy, and then how you flesh these things out. So I think if someone's here, they're on a good track. Um, I mm-hmm. think if someone is offering you short sound bites, whether that be it's something that can be consumed in an Instagram story, or a short on YouTube, or whatever, and that's all you're really getting, you're not going to be engaged engaging with ideas the way they were intended to be engaged with. Mm. Um, I do understand the idea from creator standpoint of, well, the people are on Instagram. So I put sound bites there. Like I do hear it, but I think the further in you go, the more likely you are to leave that behind. Like you left Instagram. Yeah. I don't create for Instagram anymore. Things like that. Um, so I would say looking for um, long form content is probably the best way to start. So whether it be podcast or sub stacks um, place where people put full ideas out not sound bites, and then chase the the footnotes, if you will, which is what I do. So when podcasters are talking about books, when they're talking about people they learn from, people that they also like to listen to, interview guests that they have, I will tend to chase those because I'm finding that these are the people who are trying to pursue this humanizing life, which is how I kind of cover, I guess, all this content. Why am I talking about phones when I talk about homeschooling? It's this humanizing way of living. And that continues to lead me to other things. And then I think eventually you do start to really shorten that list of the online things. I think that's just a natural reality. I kind of joke with my husband that if I'm doing my job well, people will leave me at some point. Like, they'll just be going back to the old books. Like, I will be the bridge, the homeschooling Virgil, if you will. But then they'll go to the better stuff. Because if you're ultimately really interested in truth, goodness, and beauty, and I know you like Josh Gibbs, as do I, he has said, you're not going to find it online. It's in good books, good people, and like good living, right? And so I think there is a slow... Um, shrinkage of the online content you'll start to consume as you really narrow in on the people who are beggars like yourself pointing towards what's good. And you just kind of get that small cohort. My cohort now is very small. And that's just six years of these of these questions and trying to pursue um, those who who love the ideas. I love the ideals I want to pursue. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, with that in mind, let's add some footnotes then. <laughs> uh, we like to wind down our chats asking each other what's something adding goodness, truth, or beauty to your days. So Autumn, do you have anything on your plate right now that's doing just that?
1: I do. Russian literature. Um, I'm mm-hmm. reading Anna Karenina okay. right now. I'm almost oh, near nice. the end. This is my first Tolstoy. I've had a little um, a little bit of Dostoevsky, but I really am enjoying Tolstoy. So I think what is happening is this summer of Russian lit is forming in front of my eyes. But um, it's beautifully written, um, a beautiful picture of the human experience, also written in the 1850s. It's quite orthodox, and we are orthodox inquirers. And so reading literary versions of that has just been a real treat for me. How about you? That's great.
0: Um, I am reading a book called When the Church Was Young by Marcelino D'Ambrosio. I think I'm saying that correct. I don't know. He's Italian. It is a lovely, immensely readable book, just exploring church fathers from the second century to the ninth century. So Mm -hmm. I'm only about, I don't know, a quarter of the way in. So I think that's how far he goes. But it's fantastic because I don't know about you, um, the more I learn about the stuff, I, I did not grow up knowing a lot of this, like the old church stuff, mm-hmm. the more I get a taste of it, the more I just want to know more and more, like, what do they say? And so it's just going through these people that I had heard of, but didn't know really why they mattered, like Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, all these people. And uh, it's just unpacking in very easy to understand uh, language, what it is they said and why they matter. So Wonderful. I love it link in the show notes for people who are curious about that. And I have to say with you mentioning Anna Karenina, your video on how to collect books really validated for me the feeling that um, curating a library is a legacy worth leaving. You said that I think in in your video to the point where I stopped feeling this, I don't know why, but I almost had this weird guilt for caring about quality hardback books. Instead no. of the cheap paperback versions <laughs> must have the quality hardback. Yeah. You sealed yeah. the deal for me to where it's like, okay, I'm not that I, you know, the book gluttony thing, not that I just yes. like buy them all, but you know, to where it's like, I can spend two or $3 or more for this fantastic copy of Pride and Prejudice or something. Oh, you know, 100%. So thank you for doing that.
1: 100%. Yeah. yeah, I think of it as inheritance. When I'm at library book sales, I buy most of mine used, but I will buy mm-hmm. books I already have and lovely hardback editions as well, because yeah. like, then each of my kids can take one and no one's taking mine. You know, like it's, yes. it's an investment in our souls. So,
0: yes, I yeah. appreciate you saying that. So, thank you so much. That was You're one welcome. of your better videos that I just loved, watched multiple times. All right. <laughs> so, where can people find you, Autumn? Which I know is kind of a very funny thing to say after the conversation we
1: just had. After this, but, yes. Yeah. Well, in my long form content you may find me at the commonplace podcast we're about to start season three just here in a bit about um, the liberal arts so move in that direction um you can also find me on youtube at the commonplace um they're called common mom videos and then you can find me at common house which is the online platform with all the extra resources online courses things like that so that hopefully you can take truth goodness and beauty and make it something that your entire family experiences with their five senses (laughs)
0: And I am in that common house and it is a you lovely are. place that you have created on the internet, which I, I greatly enjoy. And I will put all of that in the show notes for those of you listening who want to get offline as soon as you're done listening to this, uh, to hop over there and then go, I don't know, dig in the dirt or something. Yes. Like that. <laughs> um, all right, guys, it's time to wrap this one up. You can find this episode as well as all episodes at a drink with a friend.com. You can find me at tishoxenrider.com or you can, uh, look at my Substack newsletter and perhaps subscribe because that's where I hang out to. It's also called The Commonplace. <laughs> Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenwriter. I am Tish Oxenwriter here with Autumn Kern, and I really appreciate having you on, Autumn. Thank you so much. I'll be back here again with you soon. Thanks for listening.